One of the things I find most interesting about that video is the unspoken assumption there that it is only the things we can't see that we might refuse to believe. That's why we're always trying to find evidence of these unseen things, because the assumption says to see is to believe. But what about that? What about the things we can see? What about the things that are right in front of our faces? Would anyone refuse to believe something they saw with their own eyes? That's what the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is all about. Right before Jesus told this story, he had finished a series of four parables, most of which are probably more familiar to us than this one. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost boy, or the prodigal son, and the shrewd manager. And when he got done with those four parables, many of the Pharisees who were there and listening to Jesus were openly mocking him. Jesus had plainly said that a person cannot love both God and money, but the Pharisees, who were all about money, couldn't bring themselves to submit to Jesus' teaching. So they sneered at him instead. And then Jesus told this story, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which was designed to warn them about the perilous position they were placing themselves in. For in this story, Jesus said that a person could become so hardened, so calloused to the truth, that they wouldn't believe, even if they witnessed an absolute miracle, like a resurrection. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. If that's true, that's shocking. Can you imagine not being moved by a resurrection? Can you imagine being at a funeral? and seeing the dearly departed one sit up and climb out of the casket, and it doesn't even phase you? But that's what Jesus was saying to them. In essence, you Pharisees have become so hardened in your hearts that even if a guy named Lazarus came back from the dead, you still wouldn't repent and believe. And guess what happened next? Who knows? What? Someone said it. Jesus went to Bethany and brought a guy named Lazarus back from the dead. Jesus had traveled into the Perean province to teach and to heal. And Luke records these five parables that he spoke there, as well as some other teachings that he gave. 
And then from John chapter 11, we know that Jesus traveled from Perea back to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead. So naming Lazarus in this parable was no accident. And I'll never forget the moment that that realization dawned on me. As many of you know, I graduated from Battle Creek Academy in the mid-90s, and after I was done there, I attended Andrews University. And there I received a Bachelor of Arts degree in creative writing with an emphasis in poetry. At the time, I didn't know you couldn't actually get a job with a Bachelor of Arts degree in creative writing. <laughs> so career-wise, um, it's been mostly useless to me. But one of the main things I did take away from my higher education was some much sharper literary analysis skills. That is, I am trained to notice little details in the written word. And I don't remember how many years it was after graduation that I was reading this parable again, and all of a sudden I went, hey, there's a character in this parable with a name. That's odd. Really odd. In fact, this is the only parable Jesus ever told where he gave one of the characters a name. In all his other stories, Jesus only gives people labels. The sower, the judge, the debtor, the master, the bridegroom, the wise man, the foolish man, and so on. But this character is named Lazarus. My literary analyst alter ego went, hmm. And then it went, why Lazarus? Out of all the names you could pick, why that one? And then I thought, wait a minute, I know that name. That's a very particular biblical name. <laughs> Wouldn't you know it? It's one that's connected to a resurrection. This might have been the one moment in history when my Bachelor of Arts in Creative Writing was worthwhile. It is no coincidence that the Jesus who never named characters in his parables named the poor man in this parable with the same name of the man he was about to resurrect. But why? Why did Jesus tell this story as a prelude to the greatest miracle he ever performed? The miracle Ellen White called the most convincing evidence of his divinity. I think it was because Jesus was trying to give those sneering Pharisees a chance to understand just how hard they had made their hearts. He was trying to help them understand the incredible danger they were in. He was trying to show them that he had seen and read their hearts, and that he had diagnosed them correctly. As unbelievable as it seems to us, he knew that what was about to happen in Bethany wouldn't change a thing. He knew they were going to reject the evidence of Lazarus' resurrection from the grave. 
That really is hard to believe, isn't it? How much the Pharisees were determined not to acknowledge that Jesus was the Son of God. Think about what an extreme example this parable is. What if I predicted today that someone was going to blow up the federal building and they would find a secret tunnel to the middle of the earth underneath it? You'd think I was nuts. But then what if that exact thing happened? Wouldn't you remember what I had said? Wouldn't it stop you in your tracks for at least a second? But it seems the Pharisees and the chief priests didn't stop to think about it at all. Even after they watched someone come back from the dead. In John 11, we read about the reaction of the Sanhedrin to this miracle. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Oh, let me see if I can work this correctly. There we go. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Caiaphas. As the high priest of Israel, he was directly responsible for the spiritual feeding of the nation. Was he not? He was looked upon as the person who spoke for God. What connection does he have to the story Jesus told? Well, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus described this certain rich man as one who dressed in purple and fine linen. And then near the end of the story, as the rich man is agonizing in the flames, we learn that he has a father and five brothers. Now, there was one particular man in Israel who was known to dress, even required to dress, in purple and fine linen. Do you know who that was? The high priest. Absolutely. Was the high priest a rich man? Oh, yes, he was. By the time of Christ... The Pharisees and the chief priests, all of them were very rich, and they all lived in luxury. They had corrupted the entire sanctuary system to sustain their greedy lives. And they taught that wealth was a direct sign of God's favor. So the wealthier you were, obviously the closer you were to God. That's why the disciples were gobsmacked. When Jesus said it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Are you kidding? They knew that if you were rich, it's only because God liked you so much. And so in Matthew 19, 25, they asked, uh, who then can be saved? In their minds, the Pharisees and the chief priests and the religious leaders 
were first in line for the kingdom because they were all rich. And so Jesus tells this parable where the poor man ends up in paradise and the rich man ends up in the flames. And he begs Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead to warn his father and five brothers to amend their ways so they didn't end up right beside him. Now, Caiaphas was the high priest that year, the highest religious and civil authority in Israel. And as such, when it came time to try Jesus for the crime of blasphemy, he was sent straight to Caiaphas for trial, right? Yes? No. No. John 18:13 says they bound him, that's Jesus, and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Huh. That's interesting. Why in the world would they do that? Furthermore, why in the world does Luke chapter 3 say in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea and Herod was ruler over Galilee, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, God's word came to John in the wilderness. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas? Whenever was there a time in Israel's history when there was more than one high priest at a time? Well, these were not normal times, you see. Having rejected God as their ruling authority through the years, Israel had been brought under subjection to other ruling authorities. And the Romans had a heavy hand in the religious politics of Israel. So much so that in the time of Christ, high priests were appointed and removed at the command of the Roman governors. According to historical records, we know that Annas was appointed high priest in the year 7 AD. But the Romans apparently found him a little too hard to push around. And so they deposed him in 14 AD. But Annas wasn't about to take his demotion lying down. No, he had five sons. And for the next several decades, he remained the puppet master behind the scenes, the godfather of the temple, if you will, as one by one his sons paraded as the high priest. Annas may not have had the official title, but everyone knew he was really the top dog. That's why they took Jesus to him first. In the first century AD, there was a good old mafia family ruling the temple in Jerusalem. And Caiaphas had married into the mob. This unofficial Israelite monarchy that boasted a king and five princes. So you see, the rich man didn't get a name in the parable because he didn't need a name. 
Annas and his sons had been around for a long time. So the Pharisees and everybody else who was listening knew exactly who Jesus was talking about. Wow. Can you imagine the audacity, the nerve? Just imagine if I had stood up in this pulpit and preached a sermon this morning about Elder Jim Mitchiff going to hell. It'd be the last sermon I preached in this pulpit. It was quite a thing for Jesus to tell this story. But this wasn't just about the high priest in hell. You see, that's why Adventists don't ever preach on this parable. We think Jesus is talking about going to hell. And we don't know what to do with the story. So we ignore it. But the point of this parable is not about going to hell. It's about what happens when you reject the Holy Spirit. That's what the chief priests and religious leaders had been doing all along. If you've been reading along in the Desire of Ages in our readathon, you know that Ellen White said this about the Pharisees when they claimed that Jesus could cast out demons because he was Satan. You remember that claim. She says the Pharisees did not themselves believe the charge they had brought against Jesus. They didn't even believe it. Every single one of those dignitaries had felt drawn toward the Savior. They had heard the Spirit's voice in their own hearts, declaring him to be the anointed of Israel and urging them to confess themselves his disciples. That's almost unbelievable. This doesn't say they didn't recognize Jesus. This doesn't say they didn't know who he was. This doesn't say they were deceived. This says they knew exactly who he was, but in order to shut down his ministry, they accused him of being the opposite of who they knew he was. What does that do to a person? To try to pretend like reality is the opposite of what they know it actually is. That's insanity. And their pride kept driving them to insanity. They'd been so offended by Jesus that they would not bring themselves to accept him, even when they knew he was God. His conduct, his teaching, his whole kingdom was a direct assault on their entire way of life. And they didn't want anyone to disrupt their little system. And that's why they rejected Jesus. It's not that they didn't know he was the Messiah. They knew. It's just that every time God brought the truth home to them, they realized it would change everything. So they pushed it away determined to act as if they didn't know that was the truth. And in the end, even a resurrected Lazarus would not convince them to repent, just as Jesus predicted in his parable. In John 12, it says, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. 
For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Not only did they not accept Jesus based on the resurrection of Lazarus, but they were planning to kill them both in an attempt to get rid of the threat to their way of life. You see, while the physical setting of the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus took that from a popular Jewish myth, the great fixed chasm is a reality. And God wants us to know that just as he was trying to warn the Pharisees of that. Let's read that part of the parable again. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. What Jesus is trying to describe here is the separation between those who believe and those who don't. Between those who have accepted God and those who won't. The fixed chasm isn't physical, it's spiritual. By their persistent rejection and unbelief, the Pharisees and the chief priests were putting themselves in a position where they would be fixed. They would end up in a place where nobody would be able to cross over to them. And even God himself could no longer reach them. Not because he didn't want to, but because such efforts wouldn't matter to them. Even if somebody came back from the dead, they would be unwilling to listen. Here's Ellen White's comment on that, which you'll read in the chapter for tomorrow if you are participating in the readathon. In rejecting the proof of the divinity of Jesus, these priests and rulers had locked themselves in impenetrable darkness. See, there's the fixed chasm. They had come wholly under the sway of Satan to be hurried by him over the brink of eternal ruin. That is so sad. Yet, such was their deception that they were well pleased with themselves. They regarded themselves as patriots who were seeking the nation's salvation. That's incredible. Notice when and how the deception comes. Sometimes we think people are deceived into being lost, right? Or that they're deceived into accidentally rejecting truth. Like, well, whoops, if I'd only known the truth, I would have been saved. No. Here we see that deception comes after the truth has been seen and understood and rejected time and time again. It is only after we have fixed our minds to prefer darkness to light, only after we have rejected the Holy Spirit, who's the only one that can bring that light to us, that we end up being totally deceived. Such was their deception that they were well pleased with themselves. This is where the path of rebellion leads. That's why Jesus said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even by a resurrection. If we persistently reject the light, we will eventually be left in the darkness. That's how it works. If we're lost, 
It isn't because God has put a fixed chasm in place that will keep us out of heaven. It's because we have put ourselves out of his reach. Fixed ourselves so stubbornly in our pride that we would refuse to believe no matter what. The story of the Pharisees remains in scripture as a cautionary tale of the power we have to completely shut ourselves away from truth if we so choose. In Matthew 10:28, Jesus said this, Do not be afraid of those who <clears throat> kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Instead, fear the one who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Do you know who that is? Who is the one with the power to destroy both body and soul in hell? I'm kind of far away from you up here. You might have to shout. Who is it? Oh, I heard God. I heard Satan. Thank you, whoever that was. It's you. It's you. When God brings light into your darkness, when he confronts you with the truth as he did the Pharisees, you alone have the choice of how you will respond to that conviction. If you accept it, it will make it a little easier for God to bring you truth the next time. If you reject it, it will make it a little harder for God to bring you truth the next time. Reject it long enough, and just like Caiaphas and the chief priests, you will get to the place where you would not believe, even if you were confronted with incontrovertible proof. Each one of us has the possibility of creating an impassable chasm in our spiritual lives. We're the ones who make the choice to fix that chasm. And God has given us the freedom to do it. Oh, but oh, he doesn't make it easy. In writing on the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 regarding the narrow way that leads to life, remember, and the broad road that leads to death, Ellen White says this, yet do not therefore conclude that the upward path is the hard way and the downward road is the easy way. All along the road that leads to death, there are pains and penalties. There are sorrows and disappointments. There are warnings not to go on. God's love has made it hard for the heedless and headstrong to destroy themselves. All along the way, God keeps coming to us, warning us, pleading with us to turn around. He knows all about our pride and prejudices. And he is doing everything in his power to reach us again and again. Wherever we've come from, wherever we are, he will give us all the evidence we could ever need. The question is, once we've seen the light, what will happen next? 
there are only two possible responses to the resurrection of Lazarus. One is to fall at the feet of Jesus, as Mary did, and pour out everything we have as an offering of love. The other is to plan how to kill him. Will we anoint Jesus as Lord and Savior of our lives? Or will we crucify him? Will we listen to and obey the voice of the Spirit? Or will we permanently affix the impassable chasm so that no one, not even God himself, will ever be able to reach us again? There is only one person in the whole world who can make that choice in your life, and it's you. May we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Amen.